The more you say love, the more you practice love, the more you're going to get love. People are different, and I think we just need to, to embrace that. Just like we, we want to celebrate diversity, say ethnic diversity and gender diversity, I think we should celebrate brain diversity. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Hi, welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster, food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I wanted to thank every one of you for listening to this episode of the show. I am thrilled to introduce today's guest, Paul J. Zak. Paul's two decades of research have taken him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforest of New Guinea. This is all in his quest to understand the neuroscience of human connection, human happiness, and effective teamwork. His academic lab and companies he created develop and deploy neuroscience technologies to solve real problems faced by real people. His latest book, Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies, uses neuroscience to measure and manage organizational cultures to inspire teamwork and accelerate business outcomes. His 2012 book, The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, recounted his unlikely discovery of the neurochemical oxytocin as the key driver of trust, love, and morality that distinguish our humanity. In another obsession, Paul's group uses neuroscience to quantify the impact of movies, advertising, stories, and consumer experiences. Along the way, he's helped pioneer new fields, including neuroeconomics, neuromanagement, and neuromarketing. Paul is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. He has degrees in mathematics and economics from San Diego State University, a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania, and postdoctoral training in neuroimaging from Harvard. Paul's research on oxytocin and relationships has earned him the nickname Dr. Love. His TED Talk on this topic has received over a million views. He has appeared on CNN, Fox Business, Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, and ABC World News Tonight. Paul's focus to add more love to the world. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to be on with you. Thank you for that nice introduction. Uh, absolutely. So your bio is so interesting. And I was wondering if you could speak to how you became interested in neuroscience in the beginning and, and then how it led you down on this road. You know, there's an honest answer and a dishonest answer. So the, the honest answer is out of frustration. You know, I have this funny background in, in biology and neuroscience, um, but my PhD is in economics. And I was really trying to understand 
not only what the humans were doing on average, but where does the variation come from? So there's a kind of a deep assumption in economics that if you put people, uh, different people in the same environment, give them the same set of choices, then somehow magically they all make the same choice. And that probably would be the best choice as well. Um, so I think most economists haven't actually observed humans, as far as I can tell, because that doesn't look like anybody I know. And and even moving into your field, into people who are uh, perhaps uh, struggling psychologically, we see lots of variation in behavior, and people cannot generally tell us why they're doing what they're doing. So it requires, um, as a clinician, you need to probe into their behavior. As a researcher, I started measuring brain activity and it doesn't just come down to men and women are different or young and old are different. Brains really work quite differently in very similar environments. So what's that about? So what is that about? What are some of the factors that makes a brain act differently in similar situations? Right. So as you mentioned, you know, the, the kind of work we did about 15 years ago was really trying to understand why strangers are ever nice to each other. and you know, that sounds like a, almost a stupid question, sort of, again, for people who have been on the planet. Um, but we don't see this in animals very much. We see very rarely uh, non-human mammals uh, helping each other out, in, particularly when, it, when it's costly to help somebody out. It happens occasionally, and it happens a lot more within families or tribe members than it does for strangers. But, you know, think of, um, you know, something that you and I do all the time, which is, get in a, on a metal tube with 200 other humans and uh, bounce around at 600 miles an hour. Uh, we call that cross-country air travel. You know, if you put a bunch of chimpanzees who share 99% of our genes in a metal tube for 20 minutes, you'll have fur and blood on the floor. So what is it that makes humans so much more cooperative and not only cooperative, but we, we like being around new people. It's, it's kind of exciting. It's fun to live in big cities. So how does that work? And so we, you know, read a, I, I read a lot of literature on, on how social animals learn to cooperate with each other and essentially applied that to humans uh, and, and took oxytocin, which was then just known to be this reproductive hormone for women. Um, it showed that, in fact, the brain makes oxytocin and it has real tangible effects on human behavior. It increases our desire to cooperate with people, to be generous towards them, to sacrifice to help them. So that tells us a lot about why we live in these highly decentralized societies, right? There are, there are no uh, chiefs telling us what to do, at least not directly. Um, there are no, um, uh, you know, there's not a policeman in every corner. We are monitoring each other and there's, uh, there's some cost you bear if you behave badly towards the other humans, directly or indirectly. Indirectly, you, know, you get arrested or something. But directly too, if, I'm, if I uh, work in your office and half the time I come in, I spit at you and scream at you and oh, you don't want to be around me, right? You just say, you know, we got to fire this guy or, or I got to find a new job. So we really, really don't accept that kind of behavior. But again, chimps and a lot of other primates, non-human primates that I've studied are quite nasty creatures, actually. You know, they, they seem very human-like in many ways, but um, they, don't, they don't play nice most of the time. They do a lot of biting and scratching and drawing blood. So it's this oxytocin, which, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, differentiates us in a lot of ways from lower animals. Yes and no. So all mammals make oxytocin. 
And again, classically in mammals, it facilitates birth and maternal care for offspring and, and milk flow for breastfeeding. Uh, what happened in humans about 200,000 years ago, as far as we can tell, is that all of a sudden humans started living in groups and individuals who had more receptors for oxytocin in the brain, so they were more sensitive to this, the, this uh, neurochemical, um, seemed to thrive more. And those individuals produced more offspring. And now we have humans who are uh, you know, a whole huge step beyond uh, the number of receptors for oxytocin compared to, again, even our closest genetic relatives. So we're very sensitized to this. And, and what we found it does psychologically is it increases our sense of empathy for others. So if I interact with you and uh, I, I have a positive interaction with you, my brain is likely to make oxytocin. And now, not only can I use my cognitive ability to understand what you're doing, I can use this enhanced sense of empathy to get a sense of why you're doing something, why you care so much about it, what your emotional state is. And that's quite adaptive for social creatures like humans who live together. So yeah, it means to be a, a really effective human, you've got to have emotions. That's not a surprise to you. Right. But I think to a, a lot of people, um, you know, we have this hangover from Descartes. I think, therefore I am. I should suppress my emotions at all times. Um, again, I don't know what humans you're talking about, but those are not humans that we see every day. And people who suppress their emotions generally are not very well liked and they're not very effective human beings. Paul, what can you speak to regarding these receptors as they develop along the lifespan? So uh, that is in a young child versus an adult versus an older adult. Right. So that's one of the key questions, right? Are we born uh, you know, with all the receptors and, and with all the skills we're going to have, social skills, or are we built? And the answer is both. So we certainly see genetic variations in the number and function of oxytocin receptors in humans. Uh, and, and those humans tend to be more or less uh, empathic by personality trait. By some people we know are just, they're kind of, we call them, you know, colloquially feelers, right? They're just more sensitive to those around them. And these feelers tend to have more oxytocin receptors, particularly of, uh, of a certain type. There's, there's a bunch of different types of oxytocin receptors. So that's the first thing. But we've done studies in um, adults who as children were severely sexually abused or abandoned. And in those individuals, about half them don't have uh, functionally intact oxytocin connection uh, systems in the brain. So there's good news and bad news here. Uh, like most things in genetics, you have to have the nature and nurture to really have the system flourish. And because nature is very conservative with resources, if children are not being nurtured sufficiently, then these areas that should have many oxytocin receptors just don't develop, they, they begin to atrophy. But because oxytocin is so evolutionarily old, we find that for most people who do not face severe abuse, neglect, abandonment, that the receptors are protected. That is, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard to kill all of these receptors. A anyway, so what it means for parents is, what do your children need? I mean, this is a big question, but what do your children need is essentially enough love from you, um, enough food, and you know, kind of a stable household. And if you have those things, they're likely to turn out okay, absent you know, really bad genetic draw. 
You mentioned that in these children who were abused, that a large number of them, that those receptors atrophied. And we, we do know, and for the audience, there's a term referred to as neuroplasticity, which is that our brain can get some of this back when we lose things. For those children to where those receptor sites have atrophied, with love later in life, can those can new pathways be mapped for receptors? Will that work or what happens? That's a great question. And the the answer is probably. So we certainly know behaviorally that individuals who have very difficult childhoods or, or, or any period of life for that matter, who have social support uh, do markedly better in terms of you know functions of daily, daily living. Uh, so social support is, is extraordinarily important. I think we as Americans sometimes say, you know, we're individualists. We, um, I can survive on my own. Human beings do not survive on their own. We're, we're group creatures. We need to be members of communities. And, and I think, you know, part of the interesting findings of our research is that we need to embrace that part of ourselves. We are, we are group living animals. We need to form associations, be part of groups, be valued members of groups. Um, whether the receptors uh, regrow, we really don't know. Those are, are uh, difficult and expensive studies to do. Uh, my group has has um, spent about 10 years and around a million dollars of funding uh, trying to answer that question, and we still don't have an answer. But we have some really good tools that we think can begin to answer it, uh, probably starting in late this year or early next year. So part of the difficulty in understanding these brain basis for social behaviors is just the lack of technology to actually um, address the kind of questions that you've raised. And so the the first step is actually building out this technology. And then the second step is really using that technology to begin answering questions and changing the way we, we treat people clinically, changing the way we, we may organize uh, things like childcare or social services. It's extremely exciting and encouraging that you're putting the pieces in place to be able to answer that question, which will benefit everybody. Another question that I'm thinking about, Paul, as you were talking, children with autism or I mean, that's certainly a spectrum disorder. And formerly, we had the diagnosis of Asperger's, where the children had really poor social interactions, among other weaknesses. This makes a lot of sense in terms of that model. Is that do we see a lack of receptors or difficulty processing oxytocin in, in those children? We do. In fact, many uh, neurologic and psychiatric disorders associated with dysfunctional social behaviors, including autism, schizophrenia, social anxiety disorder, um, sometimes depression. We see dysregulations in oxytocin and or its receptors. As you mentioned in the intro, you know, we, my group has worked extraordinarily hard to get understand that variation in human behaviors everywhere. Again, from studying indigenous people to Papua New Guinea to a recent study we finished uh, in a, a facility in Wisconsin for criminal psychopaths. So we measured oxytocin release uh, in these individuals and and found that, uh, as you know, they classically lack empathy. And indeed, they do not seem on average to have the production of oxytocin at the right times in their brains. So it gives us some insight into why they can treat people so badly because they just don't feel empathy. Um, and they, And they don't seem to have the neural machinery to feel empathy. Uh, and this opens up a lot of interesting questions, right? So if, I'm, if I do something terrible to somebody and I go to the judge and say, 
hey, I couldn't help it because I don't make oxytocin or my receptors are dysfunctional, um, so I'm not really responsible. Right? That's a really interesting uh, legal approach. Uh, it's been tried once, uh, setting my research in a murder case, and was thrown out. So, but I, I think we're getting to a point in neuroscience where, uh, you know, we understand that there are lots of variations in the way brains work. And as a society, we, we've often found ways to include individuals who maybe don't, are, you know, are further from the average than, than, than others into uh, jobs like college professors. I have some colleagues who are quite unusual. I might be quite unusual myself. Or artists or uh, actors or, you know, other individuals who um, have, a, have a kind of a special skill that is quite valuable in one realm of life, but maybe, you know, uh, not, not so uh, adaptive in other areas. Uh, but legally, I think we have to worry about these issues. So I don't, I, I don't, I can't lead that discussion, but I think it's a discussion that's already beginning in, in many areas. Um, it's interesting because I know that a lot of the legal decisions are based on one's competency. So if an individual, for example, committed a murder, but they are psychotic, for example, they are unable to understand what they've done, why they've done it, that they're in the midst of legal procedures, they don't go to trial. It doesn't happen. So this is really kind of moving us down that line to, to saying, you know, so-and-so doesn't have these receptor sites or they're unable to appropriately regulate this neurochemical. Really, really interesting. And no doubt that you're going to be at the forefront of this in terms of your research. Really, really fascinating. Well, I think if I may jump in, not, not only research, but also practice. So I've really tried to apply what I have learned from research to my daily life. And um, you know, I talked about this in my previous book, The Moral Molecule, that I've really become much more compassionate and accepting of the variations in human behaviors around me. There's just not a lot of selection pressure on the brain for all brains to work identically. And therefore, people are different. And I think we just need to, to embrace that. And just like we, we want to celebrate diversity, say ethnic diversity and gender diversity, I think we should celebrate brain diversity. For listeners who, who maybe are on the autism spectrum or who uh, suffer from schizophrenia, you know, the reason these things are still around is just, there's some benefits to that. And, and you know, as you know, ADD, right? There's, there's a downside and upside. Well, everything is like that in the brain and in the body for that matter. matter. So, uh, you know, I, th- I just think we want to embrace everybody for who they are. And again, realize that, that they're part of our community, the community of human beings. And even though they may behave a little differently than we are, we ain't so different after all. So um, it is what it is. And, and we should just, just really embrace that and, and look for the best in people when possible. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go.
I love that. Absolutely love that. And one of the things that you said that struck out to me as you've been kind of applying this in your own daily life. So, you know, for the parent listening in their car right now as they're driving into work and thinking about their own family. So in what specific ways can one use this knowledge to better their relationships with their kids, their spouse, et cetera? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, one of my favorite ways is just to embrace our emotional nature. We as thoughtful human beings, if we focus on the emotions we see in others, we're gaining so much valuable information. And one little trick that I've used uh, in my own life that I found to be very effective is instead of you know walking in and saying, hi, Dr. Richard, how are you? Good, how are you? Just after you say hello, Feel in the emotion that you see in someone's face. So, uh, hey, Richard, you look tired, happy, sad, worried, concerned today. And then you begin a much more intimate conversation about really how that person is doing. And when you do that, you connect better to individuals around you. And you make them feel valued as uh, you know more than one-dimensional human beings. They have many dimensions. And if you pick up on that, gosh, people are really going to, going to value it. So I think that's the first thing to do. Again, for parents, I have teenage girls. Um, you know, they get emotional sometimes, but doesn't mean I don't love them. It just means I want to understand why they are behaving the way they're behaving. And sometimes it just requires acceptance, just just hugging them. Doesn't have to fix anything, just to see people as they are and not get so excited about um, forcing people into the box I want them to be in. Fantastic. And as you're saying all this, I'm thinking also, you know, many people wear different hats. So, you know, on one hand, you know, you're you're a dad and you've got teenage girls and then you switch hats and you go into the work environment. So when we switch roles and now all of a sudden we're at our job, um, talk to us about the role oxytocin there and talk. Please talk about your new book, Trust Factor, which really specifically goes into this in great detail. Thank you. Yes. Um, so as we did this work on oxytocin and trust, uh, a number of companies came knocking on the, the door of my laboratory and they said, we think trust is important in our organization. Can you tell us how to create it and how much do we have in our company? And I said, sure, I have uh, needles and tubes. We, we measure oxytocin by, by blood draws and I can come in and take uh, blood from your employees and you know, their faces turn white and they go, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. Um, anyway, uh, so the more I talked to these people, the more I realized, oh yeah, if you're working in an environment where you, you feel like you are a member of a valued community, where you have control over your work life, what we call psychology locus of control is high, then you know, it, you're probably going to be more productive. So maybe I should start looking at trust in this real setting uh, in companies as opposed to designing experiments now, granted, I run experiments around the world, but you know, running laboratory experiments. So I spent a, a, a couple of years just going into companies and talking to employees. And then we had a couple of companies that gave us permission to measure brain activity, including blood draws, while their employees worked. So we could actually measure, are they releasing oxytocin? How productive are, productive are they? How innovative are they? And through this, we developed a number of tools, including a software tool to measure trust within organizations, and uh, there are eight building blocks of trust that we discovered uh, from this research. And those eight building blocks somehow magically spell out the acronym oxytocin, 
I won't go through each one, but uh, in, in the new book, Trust Factor, uh, identify ways that leaders of organizations from for-profit to nonprofit to governments uh, to running a family, those are all discussed in the book, how you can create a culture of trust in which people are empowered to control their lives, but also are held accountable for what they're doing. So from a business perspective, uh, it means that I'm going to give you the tools to be successful and hold you accountable to um, display those tools, to use those tools for the good of the organization. But I'm also not going to treat you like a, a baby and micromanage you. I'm not going to step on your toes. I want to train you uh, uh, extensively and then delegate generously to you and let you try things. So just as an example, a couple of, of, of data points. So this all sounds great. And, and uh, you know, does it really work? So we find there's a real business case to be made for building um, high trust cultures. So, so people who work at companies who are in the highest quartile of trust in the United States compared to those in the lowest quartile of organizational trust have 100% more energy at work, are 76% more engaged at work, they are 50% more productive. Uh, those companies have half the employee turnover of low trust companies. They uh, enjoy their job 60% more. They feel 66% closer to their colleagues. They take 13% fewer sick days. And they're also more satisfied in their lives outside of work substantially more. So if you work in a place where you're being threatened, uh, devalued, micromanaged, that's not good for your work life and it's not good for your personal life and your physical health or mental health. So a lot of companies have realized this, companies that you would recognize that we've worked with, like Whole Foods, like Zappos, uh, Herman Miller, Trader Joe's. They consciously create environments where people can flourish on the job so they can also flourish off the job. And uh, the, the book essentially is a how-to on measuring and managing the culture of any organization for high engagement, high performance, uh, but also for creating long-term healthy relationships for the people at work. Those numbers you shared, Paul, were incredible in terms of you know, the boosts in happiness and the lower turnover. And you went, you listed so many and my eyes were popping out of my head as you were saying all these. Really, really incredible. Can you give an example or a case where you've gone into a company that didn't have any of this in place and then an actual outcome from that company of what they're like six, 12 months later, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the, the uh, book has a lot of uh, before and after data so people can see how it's done. A lot of, lot of examples of companies that I've ever worked with or uh, have read about in the literature. So I, I think the fifth chapter of the book starts with me walking through an empty building on a way to a meeting to work with executives who are doing a turnaround of a Southern U.S. business services company, not far actually from where you are in Atlanta. And uh, really wonderful company, and they really got hit hard by the recession, and then their industry was was uh, really had a lot of pressure put on it from online, blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway, so I, I'm going to meet with this new president who's going to try to engineer, turn around, and, uh, and his top, uh, top leaders. And I'm walking through this empty building full of cobwebs. They always have a shortcut. Let's cut through this building. So you walk into the building we're meeting in, and you see sort of 70s era, uh, you know, partitioned workstations 
as far as the eye can see, the energy is low. Uh, You know, it just doesn't feel like a place that wants to rock and roll. And anyway, this this new president who was an amazing uh, transformative leader really got it that, yes, they have to change their strategy. Sure, they need to generate new clients and service those clients in new ways. They also have to change the culture. Uh, There was a real culture of um, us versus them. So uh, another story I tell in the book is in that same business, I was was there for two days and you're you're like like this, I'm talking the whole time and I wanted to get a cup of tea. And as I was walking to the meeting, I see this uh, door that has a sign on it that says executive kitchen. And below that's taped this sign that's so old as the edges are curled and it says executive executives and their assistants only and it's underlined and it's just it just looks nasty and i said you know i don't know where i fall on the hierarchy here but can i just get a cup of tea in this in this little <laughs> kitchen and um anyway so i spent a couple of days with executives we collected data on their culture on the factors that were inhibiting uh teammates from working effectively together from trusting each other we developed a strategic plan to implement these over the course of a year Anyway, at the end of the meeting, you know, I said, okay, you know, you know, you know the rest of this, of this implementation is in, in your guys' hands, and I'm going to be a resource for you for you as you go forward. And uh, they said, well, what's the first thing we should do? You know, I've spent a lot of time studying this company, and I spent a couple of days in the company, but I don't want to give directives because they know their company better than I know it, right? So I said, gosh, you know, it's up to you. But I said, let me tell you one couple of things I saw spending a couple of days here. I said, first of all, that sign on the executive kitchen, like that, you know, just says it's us versus them. It's executives versus workers, uh, or, or certainly we're not on the same playing field. We're not, you know. And anyway, the, this president said, "I've worked here for a year, and every day I walk by that sign, it drives me insane." And I said, "Bob, you are the president. You can tear down that sign." And everyone's looking at him, and he gets up, he walks out of the room, goes down the hallway brings the sign back into our conference room, tears it up, throws it in the air. Everyone's clapping. I mean, it was this cathartic moment in which I think that executive team said, yes, we can take control of the culture that we are supposed to manage. We don't have to live with the culture that we are given. And that culture is not static. It's a growing, living thing. And if I can measure it, I can manage it. And over the course of the next year, they begin investing in uh, employee development, they got rid of these terrible partition workstations and built open work plans. Uh, they uh, improved the the uh, employee travel. It used to be, oh, you have to take the cheapest airfare. And it was just, they really beat up the employees for traveling, which is hard enough anyway. And in the book reports uh, the precise turnaround in their numbers. Uh, every one of these eight building blocks of trust was higher. Enjoyment at work was higher. People were happier in their lives. The whole place turned around really in less than a year because it took them some time to implement this since I was out. So yeah, the stuff can work pretty quickly, but I guess we should, I, I've used a word we haven't defined. So culture uh, can be thought of as just the set of norms of behavior that human beings in a group have. And that culture usually is hidden because we don't actively create culture. It kind of happens unconsciously. So one of the arguments in the book is that if you're in any organization you can manage that culture. And if you don't manage it, particularly when you can measure it, you can manage it. If you don't manage that culture, it will start to manage you because the humans in a group are going to create norms of behavior. And those may or may not be adaptive for the goals of your organization. So I think we need to unmask you know, what that culture looks like 
and then begin to to tweak it to make it better and better. So companies that can sustain high performance generally have cultures that they are actively managing for trust, for high engagement, for uh, a reasonable work-life integration. Um, They're looking at the long game. They don't want to just extract as much value out of you as possible because you're a human resource. You're a human being. And you, if you want to work here and you want to put your heart and soul into this, I've got to create the environment for you to flourish. And it has very little to do with money. People acclimate to their salary quite quick, quickly. So it's these other things that I think were quite squishy for a while, but now we've used neuroscience to really quantify what they are, why they matter, how they affect the brain, and how they affect behavior. I think it's always exciting when a neuroscientist uses a word like squishy. But (laughs) in seriousness, I I, I do have a question. Everything you've said makes a lot of sense. Top-down, promoting healthy culture, promoting that work-life balance. What if you're an employee? What if you are not in a position to be an agent of change, but rather you have this job, you go to work? How do you, how does one manage that in a in an organizational culture where these things are not in place, what can they do to be happier when and succeed in their work life? Right, I think it's uh, asking the same question about anybody in in a relationship. So, what if you're in a romantic relationship, or what if you're a child in a family? Aren't you just at the whims of of the other older people in the family? You're actually not. You can actively manage this. So, I give a number of examples in the book of things that employees have done to improve the work life of those around them. And as I said earlier, it's really recognizing the needs of teammates and acting to to work on those needs. So here's an example from the South. Uh, The largest privately held software company in the United States is called SAS Institute. It's based in uh, Research Triangle, North Carolina. And SAS makes uh, statistical software, very good company, um, has uh, about 5,000 employees, and when they first started, they you know they're building software. They have to figure out how to make it and get the bugs out, and and it can be stressful. They have these long meetings, and one of the administrative staff noticed that one of these long meetings was going to happen, and she went out and filled up a bowl of M and M's and put it in the conference room, and didn't say anything. And no one actually knows who this person was. It was 1977, and then they kind of realized you know what, we should create an environment where we're caring for each other. If we really want you to work at the highest level of performance, I've got to really care for the whole person. Uh, so now this this very large company buys 22 tons of M&Ms per year. And every Wednesday, in honor of this this wonderful employee who's doing one thoughtful thing for the for the folks around her, they every Wednesday put up bowls of M&Ms uh, for their employees to eat. SAS Institute has also uh, uh, subsidized uh, on-site childcare. They have uh, almost an infinite number of uh, opportunities to learn new skills. Uh, they will subsidize the cost of adoptions of uh, elder care. They have a beautiful campus. They have resident artists. They've tried to create an environment where people will want to spend their entire careers. And by the way, they work 36-hour uh, work weeks uh, and they pay well. And you know, software industry turnover is high. Turnover at SAS Institute is 2% a year. Wow. They receive about 400 applications for every job opening. So it's in a really amazing company because it's a human-centric company. And the uh, the owner and founder of, of SAS, a gentleman named uh, Jim Goodnight, wonderful name, um, said that SAS works because we have made a commitment to our employees 
and because they trust us to follow that commitment. So isn't that a kind of place you want to work and I want to work? Of course, yeah. As, a, as opposed to a place that just grinds you down. So I think it's, it's starting small. And it, even when, when I've spent time uh, collecting data at low trust companies, you'll find pockets of high engagement, high trust, high care between employees almost in every company. And sometimes they're in the corner, sometimes they're hidden. But the easiest thing people can do is to measure trust. And, and uh, I can tell you how to do that for free on my website in a second. But measure trust in your organization and find these exemplars. And if um, the trucking department has really high trust, figure out what they're doing in trucking and try to apply that company-wide. So you know, the first thing you want to do is just copy what's really working well and certainly identify areas where culture is not working well. So um, it's not hard. Uh, you can go to ofactor.com, O-F-A-C-T-O-R.com, and there's a chance to use our uh, organizational trust tool uh, for free. You can identify the building blocks of trust in that tool. There's a bunch of white papers. Um, as you said, Dr. Richard, I have a, a book coming out called Trust Factor. came out last week, actually. It came out last Tuesday, now that I'm keeping track. Um, so you can find that at Amazon and all your favorite bookstores. And I guess from my perspective, I'm, I'm uh, you know, middle-aged, uh, maybe oldish middle-aged. And I just want to do things that are useful for people, uh, you know, at this point. I have a great lab. We do lots of basic research. But at some point, we're going to turn that research into a solution that people can use. So I hope listeners will, will poke around the website and, and uh, take a peek at the book and see if they think it'll be useful for them. Well, and as you've mentioned, you know, in a number of places, your, your focus is adding more love to the world. And, and you're definitely doing that, which is fantastic. I have a question for you that I wanna wrap up with and everything you've said has been really great and I think a lot of people are gonna get quite a bit out of it. One of the things I ask all of my guests is, if you could pick out one thing, then that is the biggest helping, what would be the one piece of information, the most important thing that people should walk away with having listened to what you've shared today? Gosh, isn't that a great question? Um, I think the most important thing I would say to take away from today's discussion is that love is a real physiologic phenomenon in the brain. It's not a, your favorite word, it's not a squishy term. It's something that our brains are designed to give and to receive. And so once you understand that uh, love, which is facilitated by the brain's production of oxytocin, is necessary is necessary for pets, it's necessary for children, it's necessary for friendships, it's necessary for work colleagues. Um, obviously, these are different kinds of love, but we need love in our lives and to embrace that word. And if I can, uh, in my prescription as Dr. Love, uh, provide a prescription to, to listeners, use the word love a little more often. You can tell the people you work with that you love them they understand this means love in the philia sense, friendly love. The more you say love, the more you practice love, the more you're going to get love. If you're going to increase, increase love in the world a little bit, I think uh, the world will be a better place and actually you'll be happier. So um, that's not so hard to do. No, not at all. And something that I'm going to encourage everybody to do today, I, I really like what you said, hearkening it back to, to the M&M piece. One of the things actually that we encourage everybody on this show to do, that I encourage everybody on this show to do, is to go out and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know them. Uh, well, this is great. And, and you started, you mentioned a little bit, uh, ofactor.com 
is that the primary website where people can reach you? Is that where people can connect with you? Uh, the easiest place to find me is at pauljzach.com. And that will show you all the crazy stuff I'm doing. Uh, I'll link you to my lab website, lots of free resources, scientific papers to download, uh, studies that we're running. If you're in Southern California, we always need participants to, to work on organizational trust at ofactor.com. And, uh, and next time, Dr. Richard, we're going to talk a little about our work on the neurobiology of storytelling and persuasion. So we'll save that for, for next time. Absolutely. And also, all of these links are going to be in my show notes, including links to Paul's new book on Amazon, The Trust Factor, as well as his older book. And these will also be in our daily helping app. So listeners, you can have access to this in a number of different ways. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. And everybody, again, thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a five-star review. That's how more people find out about the show and can listen to it themselves. So as I said, I usually save this for, for the end. I talked about it a little bit earlier. Go out there and do something nice for somebody, even if you don't know them, post it in your social media feeds with the hashtag MyDailyHelping because we know for sure, and Paul can attest to this, that the happiest people are those that help others. 